Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Louis Giannis, and Happy New Year. We're starting the year off with a great start because we're going to be talking about deep dives. What do I mean by that? Well, for some reason, we've had quite a few client appointments and people are asking very detailed deep dive questions. So I'm going to actually try to uh, answer some of those questions also for you, the viewer, so that you can get hopefully some information that could be helpful for you. The reason why I want to go a little bit deeper, a little bit more detailed is because I think that a lot of people are tired of getting dumbed down information. They're tired of getting information that is not detailed enough and people are smarter than I guess a, a lot of content producers are assuming. So I'm going to assume that you're an intelligent person because I know that you are. And I'm going to talk about some answers to questions that are very common right now. As we're starting a new year, probably the biggest question we've been getting is, are we headed into a recession? And is it going to be a deep recession? And of course, everybody wants me to pull out my crystal ball. I do not have a crystal ball. But we work in the, the world of probabilities. A lot of people hate working in the world of probabilities because it requires you to think in terms of percentages. What's the probability that we're going to have condition X or Y? Rather than saying with definite purpose, it's going to be, you know, we're definitely going to have this scenario or we're definitely going to have that scenario. So we're going to talk about probabilities right now about recession. So I'm looking at my notes here and I'm just looking at some of the things that we've been discussing. As far as the economy goes, there's some risks. Obviously, we know that interest rates have been rising. Inflation has been going up. Now, it seems like inflation is probably going to be moderating somewhat, mainly because some of the supply constraints that we've been having are starting to kind of moderate. But we still have this nagging wage inflation that keeps going higher and higher. And what's really driving that is the number of job openings that we have where companies want to hire has been a lot higher than the number of people that want to go to work. That's generally driving up inflation. That seems like it's going to be a little bit of a nagging, uh, I guess, fly buzzing around the head, annoying the Fed. And it's likely going to cause them to have to raise interest rates some more. Again, this is all crystal ball stuff, probabilities here. So it seems to me like the wage inflation is probably going to be still an issue. But we'll probably have less interest rate hikes than, uh, or I should say, at a slower pace. We should have interest rate hikes that are at a slower pace. Another risk that I'm seeing is that home prices are starting to roll over. I was looking at the Case Shiller home prices, like residential homes, and it's starting to roll over from the peak. And we last time we saw this, we had a pretty big correction in home prices. And home prices tend to be, you know, very smooth in their movement mainly in terms of percent change because we don't have a mark-to-market in real estate prices on a real-time basis. It, it, it tends to move slower. Um, the real market values move faster than the actual graphs and the data collected shows, but it appears that we still have some home prices falling, and that could maybe lower people's confidence. The other thing is we're still seeing a lot of layoffs, and uh, it's a little bit somewhat baffling uh, in that we have some incongruent data coming from uh, what we see in the 10Ks and announcements from companies saying they're laying off. 
compared to what the government is is uh, reporting as the unemployment numbers. So we still have this this uh, situation that is very conflicting, where on one hand we see layoffs, on the other hand we see companies wanting a lot of workers, but nobody wants to work. Uh, perhaps they're in the wrong types of jobs that that uh, people are willing to take. Then the question also becomes like, how long can people go without working as well? Anyway, so looking at this whole recession issue, I think that it's very, very important to separate the economy from what the capital markets do. A lot of people think that it's just going to be going, you know, uh, moving up and down at the same time, but that's not what happens. What happens is usually by the time the news is telling everybody that we are in a recession, the stock market is usually bottomed and is moving forward. Maybe it's up 15% from the low. So we've already come down quite a bit in the markets, both the bond and stock markets, anticipating a recession. So one could argue that we're closer to the bottom than the top when it comes to the markets themselves, the equity markets and the fixed income markets. So, uh, I just want to caution people that don't assume that just because we have a quote unquote economic recession, that that means that the capital markets are going to be in a free fall. Could we have another year down? Absolutely. We have had uh, multiple years down in a row before in our history and it can happen again. So, but what I'm, so I guess when I look at my crystal ball, I think the probabilities are that we're closer to the bottom in the equity market in particular uh, uh, you know, and, and, and people need to be looking out for maybe a rally that's unexpected. All right. So I want to dive deep into stocks. A lot of people have been saying, Hey, how are you constructing your stock portfolios for clients and for me? And what is the overall process that you're using to do it? So I'm actually going to give you, I guess the secret sauce, some of the secret sauce to sound portfolio management. If you're in the business, you may have some varying opinions about how things should be done. I'm going to be talking about how we do things and why we think portfolio construction in individual stock portfolios should be done in a certain way. So first I want to I want to say that you want to have when you're looking at stocks, you want to have a selection process that is very very disciplined. You want to have a screening process where you're saying these are the factors that are generally um, a good idea to use to pick better than average companies in terms of price expectations, uh, appreciation in the future. So we've broken that down into three major factors. Uh, I've been using these three major factors for well over two decades, and it's been working very, very well for clients over the long run. And it's very, very simple. The three main factors that we want to look at when actually screening all the stocks in the marketplace is the first thing is quality. Quality to us means how predictable are the cash flows? How strong is the balance sheet? Do they have low debt? Is there a lot of cash? Things like that. Can they withstand a storm? So that would be the first part of the equation. The second part would be the valuation. What are the revenues and what are the, uh, the cash flows coming from the business to the owners over time? What are the assets and what are the growth rates? And what are we paying for that growth and for those assets and for those earnings? So we want to know, uh, like, how much is baked into the cake, if you will. So if the valuations are strong, then your expected return in the future is much brighter. 
And last but not least is technical. We want to look at the actual supply and demand for the securities themselves. It's so important to do this because you can have fundamental valuations look amazing. You can have high quality companies that look wonderful. But unless the supply and demand for the stock shares themselves start stabilizing and turning the corner, you will not make money. So we are very, very honed in and key our uh, analysis into what are the supply and demand dynamics for the stocks or bonds or any security for that matter. So that is the first step is screening things out. And from there, then you have to bring it down into a discipline where, uh, you know, our, our process is set up in a discipline so that it's risk controlled because you don't want to have risk go out of hand. Okay. So you want to be able to manage risk. By the way, managing risk is easier than actually finding and predicting which ones are going to have the best returns. A lot of people want to say, hey, uh, you know, let's focus in on the top returning investments. And yes, you want to do that, but you have to keep in mind that the predictability of those returns is less for any security than the actual risk of the security. So we start off with what we can do and manage the most and what is the risk, and we want to put that into the risk budget. So the entire process starts off with a risk budget. So for example, if you want to think in easy terms, let's say you want to have on a stock portfolio, you want to have a target volatility, annualized volatility of say 15%. Well, within 15%, we're going to start sizing our positions. Every time we find an investment that meets the criteria, the quality, the value, and the technicals, then we, uh, we, we break that down actually into a score, an actual metric. We put a number on it. What is the attractiveness of that investment? And the larger the number, the more we want to fill up the risk budget. So if you can imagine, you have a total risk budget for the portfolio, and then we slice it up, we slice that pie up to where each individual security has a certain amount of risk allowed for, to, for it to have, um, allowed for you to fill up. And then depending on the opportunity score, then we'll fill it up and all the way to the brim if it's the best looking opportunity relative in the marketplace. So that is the general concept. We also uh, have parameters to manage how much you can um, estimate the correlations to be because we want to have uh, investments that are not correlated to each other or lower correlated to each other. That allows us to be more aggressive um, if we can have you know, businesses that are not necessarily overlapping in what drives the revenues and the expenses or, or profits. So that is important. Now, in the position sizing, we also have parameters for overweighting and underweighting. So, for example, we typically don't overweight more than 50% of the total risk budget uh, or underweight less than 50% of the overall risk budget. We also are very keen on how we size relative to time. Your, your, your time horizon is so important. The longer term you hold something, the longer the more risk actually you take in terms of potential drawdowns. So uh, it's important to understand that. Now that goes up to a point. Then you have it kind of reversing, and that's a big discussion. But let's just suffice it to say that we, we when we look at our time horizon, our sizing is relative to that as well. Because... If we're looking for an investment to pay off over three years or six months or five years, that's a different sizing uh, uh, problem, if you will, than if you were day trading a, a stock, which we don't do. But uh, just to just to kind of make the point, you, we, we look at the time horizon and then we also look at 
how much we're going to actually put fail safes. So let me explain the fail safes a little bit. When we're talking about a fail safe, what we're doing is we're talking about every single stock that we buy. No matter how much we love it, we also give it an uncle point where we say this is too much downside volatility and we are going to reduce and or exit that investment no matter how much we love it. And the, the reason why is very, very simple. The fallibility of fundamental analysis is great. You can have analysis and do pull every single piece of data that you can possibly think of and you could still be wrong. And we are wrong. Everybody is wrong uh, from time to time. So your hit rate of when you're right might be 60% and you can do extremely well, uh, even at 50% and even 30% if you know how to do position sizing and cutting your losses. So it's important to understand that when we're managing these accounts and investments for our clients, we're always looking at what we can do to fail safe positions so that we don't have massive losses because what's important is that we don't have big drawdowns because when you want to compound your money, if you have big drawdowns, it takes you a long time to claw back and that really hurts compounding, especially if you're retired or if you're getting closer to retirement, you can't afford to have these big drawdowns and percentage losses. So, um, so that's one of the things that we do. Now, when we set our fail safes, we actually have a confidence interval that we look at. Uh, we look at in, in that time frame that we're looking at, we use a confidence band so that we know that the normal volatility of an instrument of a stock, for example, should stay within a certain range um, in, a, in a given time frame. And if it doesn't, then we know that it's acting unusual. And we, so the, these processes help us systematically identify those investments that are acting unusual, in particular to the downside. Okay. So we've uh, come up with our signal strength is what we call it, which is basically a score for opportunity. Let's say it's 100%. We're using 100% of our risk budget for this opportunity because it's, it's a great opportunity. We're just going to take that, multiply that 100% times uh, various scalars, right? So we're looking at the volatility of that, whatever that, that instrument is, and we will go up to that maximum uh, uh, depending on, on how attractive the investment is. All right, and by the way, when we're looking at volatility, it's important to understand that what we do is we look at both short-term and longer-term volatility because when you look at uh, parameters for estimating volatility, generally, there's a lot of data supporting that you want to look at the shorter-term volatility as a better forecast in the near term. Uh, but if they get out of whack, if you have short-term periods of time when they get excessively high or excessively low, that estimate can be wrong and it will tend to mean revert back to a longer term estimate. So we basically, we have a blending of long-term and shorter term volatility estimates when we're looking at our volatility. Okay. So we've, we've, we've scaled our volatility. We've looked at the opportunities and we've diversified. Now, when we're going through our diversification, one of the things that we look at is we have a benchmark that we, we look at. Now, the most common benchmark that we use is the Russell 3000, which is basically the largest 3000 companies in the United States for, for our U.S. Uh, portion of our portfolios. Um, and so when we're looking at that, we, we have a certain amount of, of opportunities within each sector, within, within, within each industry. So we are cognizant of what those percentages are in the index, but we give ourselves room around that. Uh, uh, percentage in sectors and industries 
so that we can overweight and underweight, but we don't want to stray so far that our tracking error gets out of whack because we are benchmarking. We use blended benchmarks and it's really important. It's a whole nother discussion. I actually have a podcast uh, about blended benchmarks. You could probably look it up and find it, but it's, it's a podcast where I talk about how to measure your performance. Okay. So when we're looking at these, these uh, risk budgets, we're also looking at sector weights and industry weights, and we want to stay within bands or tolerance bands for those uh, sectors. As we're moving along, let's talk a little bit about how, how we sell. So remember how I talked about a opportunity score. When the opportunity becomes less attractive, then obviously we will start pairing back from the stock and uh, all the way down to zero. And uh, we will also sell if there are other investments that are more advantageous, more more uh, have better opportunity than our current holdings in that particular risk item, in that sector, in that industry, we will uh, swap uh, positions in that case. Uh, the other thing that we will do is if our fail-safe levels are hit, we will also exit a stock. Typically, we scale our way out rather than just carte blanche selling a stock. We will also sell a stock that as it's gone up, that it gets extremely parabolic. So uh, if if a, a stock goes parabolic, it will it will move up very rapidly and get well ahead of itself. We will bring that back into line. That also keeps the portfolio more in line with the volatility targets that we have and the risk budgets that we have for our clients. Because all of our clients want us to manage volatility. They don't want to have big surprises. So our goal is to get reasonable rates of return without taking excessive risks. And this is this is not a hit to cover off the ball strategy. This is something that is used for people's life goals, for retirement, for building wealth, and to have something that they can rely on. It's not it's not fast-paced speculation. I'm all, you know, I am all for fast-paced paced speculation. I have friends that are very very good at that. In fact, I'll have some on my podcast to talk about how they do that. But it's not what normally our clients at WealthNet need and desire. They have long-term objectives that we're trying to meet. So we have a little bit different approach to how we're doing things. All right. So that I think that's a general overview of how we do things. I want to make a little bit of an, a, a discussion about the, the overall stock market because, you know, the overall stock market does determine, because we're in this, you know, we're talking about stocks right now. When you have a bad market and you have a sea of red, I heard somebody say that. I thought that was a great way of talking about it. But if you have a sea of red in the market, everything goes down. It's very, very difficult to find those single stocks that are going to move up that are going to move up. So we'll generally have less risk on. We'll have more money in T-bills because as those opportunity scores come down, as the fail-safe skits get hit, we get pulled out of the market. Uh, so for example, just as an example, right now in our fundamental trend strategy, which is the strategy that looks more for the fast growers, and we haven't really talked about the different styles of, of stock selection, but in that strategy, we're 79% our targets, um, percent invested in the stock, uh, sleeve, if you will, or security set it's 79% in stocks and 20, uh, 20% in, or so, um, Basically, it's 80-20. We have T-bills, about 20% in T-bills. Okay, so that's a little bit about the stock. I hope this gives you a sense, if you're a client, gives you a sense about what it is that we're doing behind the scenes. Um, uh, we have different strategies for 
uh, for equity income, which is has a different selection process, more more really strong, you know, long-term, safer companies with high dividend yields with growth. Uh, you know, and then we also have blends of those, and we also have fixed income and alternatives. So that's that's a, a whole other discussion about port, overall portfolios construction. In this little section here, I wanted to talk just about stocks. All right. Um, another thing that people have been talking about is retirement income. I tell you what, as every time we get into a new year, people say, you know what? Especially if you're retired or you're you're coming close to retiring. It's like, okay, how am I supposed to get my income out in the next year? What is the best thing, best way for me to take my retirement income out? And this is a, a common problem for people. Uh, if you're about to retire, it's more about how should I adjust my portfolio so that I am in a good position when I retire? I'm retiring in a year. We've been getting more and more people saying I'm retiring in a year, in five years or 10 years. And I really want to be set up so that um, that I'm on track. And let's take the different scenarios. Let's talk a little bit about people who are, are retired now, early in their retirement. So people that are early in their retirement right now, especially if they retired in the last few years and the market has been down, there's a question about like, there's a fear that seems to be out there. Is this market going to go, go down a lot more? And if so, how is that going to affect me? Am I still okay? Even people with a lot of money are saying that. Okay, so there's a lot of question about that because you could split up your portfolio into two main uh, buckets. One would be your guaranteed sources. So you have various guaranteed sources that you can get income from. It could be a pension, could be Social Security, it could be an annuity. You know, what is that going to prov provide and what's knowable about that? And then what is your total return portfolio, your stocks and your bonds and all of that? How is that uh, set up? So that mix is really important to solve for. That you have to triangulate with my tax situation. So different people have different dollar amounts or percentages of their portfolio in tax-free investments, taxable investments, IRAs, 401ks. They may have different tax treatment. So it's really, really important to understand what those ratios are because for you, it may be a different strategy for taking that income out. Everybody is so different in terms of how they should do things that's optimal for them. So sometimes I hear uh, folks will say, you know, just, you know, quickly tell me what, what is the most I can take out. Well, without having the, the overall picture about all of your sources, it's virtually impossible to give you good advice on that. Another thing that's virtually impossible to uh, solve your retirement income plan without is your budgeting. A lot of people go, well, I'm, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to spend, but tell me, you know, tell me what I can do. Okay. You have to keep records about what your budget is. How much are you going to need? And are you the type of person that's going to want to take more money out early in your retirement or, or, or more money out later? Are you going to be really frugal early on? Uh, there's different people have different types of lifestyles that they're thinking about. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing a gentleman by the name of Wade Fow, who is one of the, uh, I, I would call him pioneer uh, uh, investment people that's uh, involved with retirement planning. He actually has a new book, Retirement Planning Guidebook, which I think is an excellent, excellent book. Uh, it can be, it is very comprehensive, but it actually is geared, I believe, more towards investment advisors and people who are who want to have that much detail 
But I, when we when we talk, we're going to be talking about a lot of these retirement plan, planning issues. So I'm not going to talk too much more about this. But in answering that question about how I should best take my my money out for retirement, you really need to be thinking about a lot of different things, and this requires using powerful planning software really to to get to the right answer. You can make things as simple as possible, which you should, but it's important to understand what the dynamics are and what my options are. You know, you may want to be taking more annuity income early. You may want to take Social Security later. You may want to take it earlier. You may want to uh, take your pension and take a lump sum. You may want to take income from your pension. You may, may want to take money more from your taxable accounts first or later. You might. You may want to roll over or, or, or convert some of your IRAs or 401ks into Roths because you want to uh, protect yourself and get more tax diversification so you don't get nailed with taxes. And as a sidebar, number one, taxes are going up a lot for people that we're seeing when right after they retire because all of a sudden they're getting a lot more taxable sources. So it's very interesting how that works. Number two, people who are losing a spouse, they tend to have a higher taxable bill too because a lot of times the there's acceleration of retirement accounts that have to come out sometimes. Sometimes you can avoid it, other times you can't. So it's really important to triangulate or to solve for taxes. It's a big part of the equation. I ran an analysis. We have a portfolio optimization software. And I ran an analysis on our tax managed portfolios versus our taxable portfolios or, or, uh, or an IRA, something that, that, pays, uh, that you pay 100% tax on the way out. And what I found was that actually our tax managed strategies have a full 1% increase in the withdrawal rate. That may not sound like much, but when you're going from a 3.5% withdrawal rate sustainable for the rest of your life to a 5 or a 4.5, that's a big difference and it's a lot of money. So, you know, it's important that you understand your tax situation, that you have good advisors that can help you manage that tax bill because that tax bill gets ugly. So that's another thing people have been asking a lot about. You know, what is my sustainable withdrawal rate? What is my the most I can uh, do? Uh, and it boils down, you really got to have a good budget. One of the clients that we met with, actually, he's a, an engineer and or he's a retired engineer. And I was amazed at his meticulous records, and he actually went year by year telling us average expenses that he's actually paid. And you know what's interesting is that growth rate was much, much higher than the inflation rate, and they are extremely frugal. So the inflation numbers that you're hearing from the government, I'm here to tell you, at least from our perspective, from what we're seeing from our clients, it is underestimating what people are really realizing in their expenses. Another sidebar with that is a lot of people don't have a contingency plan or some form of a buffer reserve for healthcare expenses, long-term care or you know healthcare, healthcare insurance and calamities, things like that. So the, the, the reserve element of the retirement plan cannot be overlooked. And if it is overlooked, it'll cause surprises for a lot of people later down the line. All right, so if you have, if you need uh, some help on looking at that and you want to have a second opinion on your retirement plan, let us know. Go to wealthnetinvest.com and click on the button that says schedule a call and we will have some calls with you free of charge to talk about your situation. All right, also pick up my book, The Financial Freedom Blueprint. Uh, you could go to pathtorealwealth.com and you could pick that up. 
and uh, and I, I'm I'm sending out signed copies at that uh, address, uh, and we'll mail that out to you signed. Or you could go to Amazon and pick it up. Uh, I have a lot of information packed in uh, a pretty thin book. It's only about 250 pages or so, but it's very packed with a lot of things about how to uh, get your retirement plans set up. Uh, I just want to say again, Happy New Year, and I hope that uh, you have a great, prosperous New Year. And as always, if you need anything, shout out to us, and we'll be glad to help you. Louis Giannis with Wealth and Investments signing off. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.